0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Happy Hour History. I want to say that, of course, this is the last Monday of Black History Month, so the last recommendation relevant that I want to make specifically here is that if you don't watch any other documentary about the Black American experience in this country, I highly recommend you watch I Am Not Your Negro It is based on the writing of James Baldwin. It's a manuscript that was never finished, right? So he didn't get to turn it into a book, but it is free on Amazon Prime. And if you have like if you're in school, you likely have a free subscription to Canopy, K-A-N-O-P-Y. And you can watch the film there for free as well if you don't have Amazon Prime. But what I love about the movie is that not only does it take clippings of Baldwin's from That are relevant to the 50s and the 60s, but it also juxtaposes it to things that happened in the 2010s. So it shows the viewer and, you know, many people who are not aware of these pockets of history or the deep inequalities and or just the the social reckoning of the country. But it shows that things haven't improved, really, right? I mean, obviously, there have been some improvements like, you know, you can't have, legally speaking, you can't just have overt racism. But we know that these things still happen. And I think it makes a great point that, you know, this is a long-standing reckoning that the country never really figured out. But it also says something about the psyche of the people who perpetuate racist uh, and harmful tropes on other groups of people because it's really just them <laughs> projecting their own fears about themselves, and in this case, onto Black people because we, in this country, Black Americans, are and people who are specific to the lineage of those who were enslaved in this country—that's a very important distinction—are seen as the bottom cast. So. I highly recommend that documentary. Like I said, it's called "I am Not Your Negro. It's available for free on Amazon Prime and through Canopy if you have a um, if you're on a college campus, then you likely have access to that as well. But the theme of today's episode is actually going to be anti-Asian feelings. and we're going to talk a little bit about specific things that were specific to Chinese experience in America. and of course, you know, Chinese Americans and then Filipinos in America and Filipino Americans. So the citizenship aspect is very important, right? However, it's I'm not going to spend too much time making the distinction as I go through the podcast. So when I'm saying Chinese or Filipino, that includes anybody who's an American citizen who has ancestry to any of those two countries, and it also includes um, you know those who were not nationally american citizens but who are living and working here and so obviously their experience is very important so one of the things that i thought was a pretty alarming statistic is that in 2020 pbs said that there were 100 incidents per day and i'm sure that's an average but 100 incidents per day of crimes that of hate crimes that specifically targeted asian and asian americans now Obviously, those of us who, you know, pay attention to current events and also know history, know that this is a long-standing issue and that in this case, the coronavirus did not help that, right? We had a presidential administration that did blame a lot of the disease on specifically those from China, and it led to a lot of people harming Asians in general, but also specifically people who they believed to be Chinese. Now, I go into this in my classes, but of course, you know, a lot of the people who are perpetuating anti-Asian sentiment aren't making the distinction between which group they're enacting that violence on. And um, it's not to say that it's right either way, but what it does mean is that in this case, if Someone is specifically blaming China and Chinese people for something there. The people who are going to enact violence on those people are not going to try to make the distinction between Koreans, Japanese, Chinese, Vietnamese, Filipinos. Right. Anything like that. All they see is, oh, this person to me looks like an Asian. Therefore, like I am going to, you know, do a microaggression or a very overt um, instance of violence on this person because they are the threat in my mind. That's how they're thinking. And so I wanted to make that clear that, you know, for a lot of people who do this type of thing, they're not trying to make a distinction between who is who. But Andrew Yang famously in 2020 also said that he thought that fellow Asian Americans should showcase their Americanness by wearing like red, white, and blue, And like trying to make it seem outwardly like how patriotic and proud they were to be Americans. And obviously a lot of people had, you know, issues with that because someone shouldn't have to like wrap themselves in the flag to not have to worry about, you know, exhibiting or excuse me, having to be the victim of violence. And we know that even if people did do those things, they're still going to be met with violence just like any other group of people, right? I mean, if someone decides that they don't like you or don't think that you belong in those spaces, it doesn't matter if you're wearing the flag. It doesn't matter if you're wearing, you know, a, um, like a doctor's, you know, lab coat with a stethoscope. It doesn't matter if you're wearing, you know, pajama pants. Like they just, they don't want you there in whatever space. So it really brought up this whole issue of, you know, seemingly like Andrew Yang was saying that, um, you know, people that he was saying to Asian, fellow Asian Americans, that they needed to sort of like buy into that model minority stereotype. Now, if you're not aware, the model minority stereotype is very, very prevalent in American society, because essentially what happens is, is this stereotype that Asians are the the better immigrants, right, as a continent of people. So it, again, it's problematic because it doesn't, well, let me explain it first, sorry, and then I'll go back and say what's wrong with it. But the model minority stereotype says that people who come from Asia are better educated, have, you know, better effects on the economy, they participate more in being American, they don't really protest about any sort of racial injustice. And, they you know have they have all the positive stereotypes of coming to the US what the US claims they want their immigrant groups to do when they get here the problems with that are that it also reinforces anti-blackness anti you know brownness um and it really does not speak to the specific instances of different people who come from the continent of Asia. So when you look at statistics for, you know, what are the top, I mean, and I would encourage you to do that. What are the top four countries that people are coming from that are technically within the country of Asia, right? Someone coming, someone immigrating to the US from India is not having the same experience as someone who's immigrating to this country from Laos. Okay, so these are very important distinctions. So a lot of people who are Asian and who immigrate here and don't have access to the same type of resources, don't have the same immigration experience, because, of course, as we know, like there's no continental rule. There's no worldwide rule on who we accept and how many and why we do and what resources we offer them. It all varies by what country you're coming from. So it doesn't allow the people who don't have access and don't have equal access to resources to share their experience more. It doesn't look at the poverty rates that a lot of Asian immigrants are dealing with once they're here or things that happen in their community once they have been, you know, firmly American because they sort of just get washed over as, oh, well, you know, they're all fine we don't have to help them. It also stops people from thinking that they can find allyship with different Asian groups. Right. Because, of course, there is a long history of Asian groups allying with brown power, black power, red power, um, you know, other yellow power groups decades ago, even today. But a lot of people don't buy into that because that's not what they see in their media, right? They don't see they don't always or often see large influxes of people working together from different communities unless they specifically are from those communities, know people who are doing that work or you know make sure that they have access to the information for the people who do. So it was very problematic when Andrew Yang said that because you know nobody should have to go through these you know types of displays to not have to worry about violence enacted on them and there's the whole, the the old adage that the fish rots from the head so if you have leaders who are saying you know who are blaming specific people for things it's going to lead to violence because people are going to think that it's okay to demonize groups of people who you know obviously don't want to have to worry about dying in this case from an infectious disease either like anybody else so let's talk about some specific legislation against Chinese groups in this country and then um I'll talk a little bit about Stockton so because that's important here So we have the Burlingame Treaty, which is in 1868. This allows immigration from China to the United States and positions China as an important trading partner of ours. But a few years later, um, the Angel Treaty, I think that's how you pronounce it, in 1880, A-N-G-E-L-L, it regulates immigration from China into the U.S. So they start putting... um, starts having a lot more rules associated with it. And then two years later, the Agnell Treaty basically becomes the Chinese Exclusion Act two years later in 1882. And the president at the time, President Arthur, prohibits Chinese laborers from immigrating to the U.S. at all. So there's a lot of important things going on there in that time period. So of course, if you look at what's going on at the time, like, because I always say that, you know, a lot of these things do happen concurrently, which is very important. This is a huge time for industry in the United States. And so, of course, the people who are going to be, who are already here in the U.S. and then the people who are immigrating to the United States are going to obviously be a part of that. Now, they were dealing at a time where, you know, in 1882, there wasn't even an established eight-hour workday yet, not for a few more years. So, um you know, there are a lot less rules surrounding working. And in this case, you know, this is a specific legislation that bans people from an entire country from coming into the U.S., even though just a few years ago, um, you know, China, again, like I'm in the 1860s here, they had been seen as a prominent and, you know, important trading partner with the United States. So one of the other um, pieces of legislation that's also very important is the Magnuson Act, which is in 1943, and that is when they started allowing people from China to enter into the United States for the purposes of immigration again, but it was only 105 people per year. Also something that a lot of people don't know about specific to Chinese Americans and people who immigrated initially from China into the United States is that even while these people were here, this group of people was here in the U.S., they had a lot of specific legislation that stopped them from experiencing their full liberties, even as citizens. So one of the things that's very important is that I've told you all before in previous podcasts that specific jobs were relegated to specific groups in this country. So um, a lot of Chinese laborers were put on you know, very dangerous jobs where they would have to deal with chemicals and potentially dying. A lot of mining, right? Um, industry, railroads is something that a lot of people know about. But they also reserved these jobs, um, such as cooking and cleaning. And this is also at a time where they're not allowing Chinese women to come into the United States. And they're also not allowing these Chinese men oftentimes to get married to anybody that they want to get married to so they can't marry women who are from their own country because they're not allowed into the country and of course you know why wouldn't they want to do that right it all goes back to those reconstruction amendments that i talked about before but this in in this case it's the 14th amendment in addition to giving equal protection under the law the 14th amendment says that anybody who's born you know, in the United States or in one of the territories is a United States citizen. So they didn't want Chinese women to come over and of course have babies with the men who were already here. And then those children would be citizens of the country, but they didn't allow a lot of room for these men to marry into other communities. So for example, um, Chinese men could not marry white women. These white women would lose their citizenship, Um, There were a lot of Chinese men who did marry into black communities and other communities because that's all they had available to them. And, you know, of course, these are people who are still wanting to have companionship and, you know, family and things like that. So. It's very interesting when you look at, you know, groups of people who couldn't even get married. Now, of course, there's not like a Chinese code, right? Like we discussed before, like with a black code, but it is an example where they can't um, exercise their full liberties. They're also not allowed to live wherever they want to live, right? Like we already discussed, they can't have whatever job they want. Now, in the United States, because this is a very heteropatriarchal society, cooking and cleaning is relegated to like it's seen as women's work. So, you know, this really begins the process of making, of trying to make Chinese men, um, appear to be less masculine and I'm trying to think of like exactly how to say what I want to say, but the, to make them less like prime candidates for desirability, if that makes sense. And I think I mentioned this before, but, um, It also continues on with Hollywood and, you know, all the terrible stereotypes in our media that are still perpetuated today. So it all has roots in this time period. Um, Obviously, anti-miscegenation laws are part of that. So from 1691 to 1967, people are not allowed to get married interracially. So there are also a lot of um, issues with... Asians in specific states, and in this case, Chinese people in California and other places, where they are may not legally be able to get married to someone, even if that person is not a member of the white race. It really depends on the state law, and how much it's enforced, and then of course what the um, channels are for contestation and/or what the punishments would have been at the time. Okay. So let's transition to Filipinos. So people who came from the Philippines were in this continent centuries ago, right? So, of course, they're, because Manila is a huge trading port for a lot of people who are even kidnapped from China and brought into the Americas to be slaves um, in the Americas and South America, and when I say Americas, I mean North, Central, South, and the Caribbean, so just so we're clear. So um, Manila was a huge trading port. So of course there are going to be people who were taken from the Philippines and also brought into the United States for the purpose of work, some of them against their will. And because they are not a protected class in the country at that time, they also have to deal with racism as well as unfair hiring practices, unfair treatments on the job, et cetera, just like other groups. Because like I said, there are not equal opportunity clauses yet that benefit anybody. And even when... You know, there is specific federal constitution like the 14th Amendment that are supposed to give equal protection. We know that that's not exactly what's happening. So, Filipinos were also used as farm laborers in Hawaii. Um, A lot of them were part of the fishing industry in Alaska. And some people were here for educational training, right? So, then not that they were going to be citizens, but that they were going to come to the United States, you know, get their college education, and then go back to the Philippines. So somebody who's um, pretty known around farming communities, I would say in California, I would hope if you're listening to this in California, you've heard of this man, but maybe not. His name was Larry Itleong. So he's a person of interest. Um, if you're interested in like reading about him or looking up the things that he did um, in the Central Valley with the farming communities. But he organized efforts for Filipino-American farm laborers back in the 1930s. So Stockton, California, was a huge hub of Filipino-Americans. And one of the things I meant to say before is that um, Stockton is also a place where you've seen recently uh, like the uptick in um, anti-Asian assaults right, um, on Asians in general. And in that case, I mean Asians and Pacific Islanders. So... Um, Stockton is also the, an important city because of the deep water port. So I know many of you are familiar with the Bay area, but the deep water port is in Stockton. So a lot of Asian groups had prominence in that area because of that deep water port. And because like we said, industry being a huge thing, people having, getting jobs surrounding farm laborers and also industry, there's going to be a high population in that area. The other important thing about identifying Stockton specifically is that it helps in the stereotype that these attacks are in some less diverse states that are happening today and that happened in the past. Right? Um, it's not lost on me, and I hope it's not lost on you, that a lot of the attacks we're looking at are in what we would consider to be diverse states like New York, right? Where there was a man, um, who, a Filipino man, who I believe had his face slashed open, right? Um, or in Stockton, California. And and even Los Angeles. So when people say things like, oh, well, you know, I, I'm so surprised it's happening in California, it's like, well, you shouldn't be, right? Because California has a long history of anti Asian legislation. And just another example um, Chinese students. You know in their youth were not even able to go to school with other races of students so if you're interested in an example of that you can look up tape v hurley and that was you know decades before um, the brown v board of education but that is a um, bay area chinese american family that was suing because their daughter was not able to enroll in an all-white school So California does have a long history of doing things like that as well. Um, To continue on, here's some specific legislation against Filipinos that have happened in the United States. So the first one I'm going to bring up um, is in Stockton again. Go figure. But in 1926, there were um, a large group of well, there were instances of Filipinos that were being stabbed and beaten up that all were happening around that same time. There was an issue in Yakima, Washington, excuse me, Yakima Valley, Washington in 1928. There were Watsonville riots, which happened in early 1930. I believe it was January. In Stockton, there is a little Manila part of town, and there was a building that was bombed there. 1934, they have the Tidings-McDuffie Act, which leads to independence of the Philippines from the United States, and then also limits immigration to the United States as part of that. And um, we also have the Nationality Act of 1940, which was a path decisionship for Filipinos who served in the U.S. Armed Forces, which, of course, if you're you know, thinking about timelines and things that are more commonly known, this is right before um, we get involved with World War Two, but it was already happening at that time. Now, something I do want to say before I forget is that a lot of these Filipino veterans who did give their lives in service, whether they died or not, um, well, obviously, if they had died, it wouldn't be relevant to this, What I'm about to say, but um, who fought and came back to the United States, who were eligible for citizenship were deported. Um, Some of them were deported back to the Philippines. Some of them were deported to Mexico. But the point is, is that there is also a history of the United States reneging on their agreements. Right. So even though we have this nationality act that says, hey, you know, if you're from the Philippines and you want to come over and serve in our armed forces, um, We'll let you stay and become a citizen after that. We didn't always uphold our end of the promise. So there is some reading. If you are interested in that, you can easily search it up because there are, of course, This wasn't that long ago. So some of these people are still alive, even though they're very old, and or their families um, that they've created are relaying the story of, you know, their family member who had to deal with this um, and this failed promise, even though they were willing to die in the war for the United States um, in World War II. Which kind of brings me back to the thing that Andrew Yang had said about, you know, encouraging, Asian Americans to, like, drape themselves in the flag in order to be seen as more patriotic. Few people would argue that there's anything more patriotic than, you know, being willing to take on the burden of the country you're moving to. And one of the ways in which some people do that, if they're able to, is to join a military, right? So these people did exactly what Andrew Yang was, you know, suggesting, but decades before, right, like almost 80 years ago. And it's still very interesting that it's not quite seen as enough. My God, did I say 80 years? Dude, time flies. I guess it is 80. 1940 to 2020. I don't do math. That's 60. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, there you go. So, of course, you know, if you're going by that logic, their family, their ancestors have already paid that debt. Right. Um, And of course, them being Americans, too. Right. Like there's not there no matter what group you come from, that, you know, you have your unique heritage and culture and history and experience in this country. But, you know, there are also a lot of things that are part of the unifying American experience, Right. That groups have had to go through and fight for in order to get, um, you know, to make a better life for the current and the future generations. So I kind of wanted to tie it back to what Yang had said, just because I think that. You know, it puts it into a little bit more context that, um, you know, there have been a lot of people who have done exactly that, who've tried to, you know, and that kind of goes back to what I was mentioning in one of my very first podcasts about the criminalization during the pandemic. But, you know, you have all these people who did things, you know, quote unquote, the right way or who believed that they were abiding by the book. And if I didn't specifically say then, I'm going to say it now those are things that we call today respectability politics that some people call respectability politics this idea that you know if you do things by the book if you follow the rules right with you know with the quote fingers if you you know do all the things that the american government and the propaganda media tell you that you should do that somehow you'll be able to have you know the house and the dog and the family and the cars and the vacations and the savings and you know it'll just all perpetuate itself which brings me to one quote specifically from I'm not your negro but well that's not a quote because I don't have um I don't have the novelization right here with me of the documentary because I do also have the book (laughs) but um essentially what Baldwin says is that No other country besides those in the United States, like have bought into this whole notion that, you know, into this idea that you can have everything, all the hallmarks of middle and upper middle class life, and that your children will also inherit that and that it will just continue and continue and continue. And, you know, he also says that, you know, Americans in general, all of us are, you know, we have, we're just, we're too safe. Like We're too complacent. We don't pay attention. We're not on alert. And so when it comes to things that are happening around the world and even the things I've talked about today, um, when we think about the things that are happening in our country that have happened in our country. There are so many people who don't understand that, who don't have the basic notion that despite the legislation of the country, despite the Constitution, despite, you know, the protests and the fighting and the marching and the things that we still continue to see, that things have not been equal and that not enough time has passed. That really, I would say, even on paper, there wasn't full equality, like you know, federally, even within California state until the like 1989 ish, like the late 80s was the first time that things were like, hey, you can live where you want to live now. And we can't say we can't, you know, say you can't. And if we find out that, you know, the realtor um, or the bank is, you know, practicing these discriminatory practices on you because of your race or your sexuality or your gender or anything like that, like there are legal recourses for you to receive restitution for that damage. We didn't have that for a very long time. So of course considering the context of the history that I just went over it is no surprise that these quote diverse states are dealing with this anti-Asian sentiment that they continue to be hotbeds of racial division even with other groups of people that we um you know are still seeing you know people who of course are unaware of the meaningful solidarity that a lot of these groups have done in the past and are would rather work as a unified group to you know f- you know to form a fist rather than to be operating as separate fingers right and that is exactly what the government needs to happen for there to be any meaningful change And excuse me, that's what the government wants to happen. The government wants everybody to be thinking splintered. They want people to say, hey, the person who attacked this man was black. And so, you know, those two groups are now fighting amongst each other rather than fighting together. Right. Or, you know, for people to say, well, these attacks happen, so we need to beef up the police presence, because, of course, that would be very, very um, that would be very, very convenient. Right. Especially with all of the protests that happened over the last few months and also last year that have been ongoing efforts. Right. But really ramped up um, because of the pandemic and people being home, seeing what was happening on current events in the news, being on social media a little bit more. Um, So we have to be very careful not to just, you know, take the bait, so to speak, on that. Right. Or to think that these things aren't your problem because you're not Asian, because it is your problem. (laughs) It's my problem. It's all of our problem, because when you allow a group of people to be marginalized, it makes it acceptable for it to go and eventually meet another group of people. And it is, of course, better to work as an organized fist together with, you know, each, you know, if you think about like each finger having its own unique, you know, like in, experience, right? You use your forefinger for some things, use your thumb for other things, etc. Use your pinky, you know, when you're drinking tea or whatever. But when you ball it all together as a fist, they're all working together. It's more powerful than if they're doing things separately. So I'm going to end this. But I know it's about to be March. Um <laughs> Last March is when everything sort of shut down. So, you know, I even though there's been a lot of commercials, I've seen a lot of commercials lately saying, oh, you know, the pandemic's, you know, over and it's safe to do everything else. Um, Just be mindful of what the health officials are saying, not the media and not celebrities who, of course, don't interact with the public on a regular basis anyway right? Please keep on top of your county website, which tells you what tier you're in when it comes to vaccinations, if that is what you would like to do. Um, I've been looking at the one for San Diego County. Um, if you're in San Diego, it's San SanDiegoCounty.gov. They have a COVID-19 um, tab and you can click that to see, you know, if you want to get vaccinated or, um, you know, you have family or friends who don't know, you know, what phase they'd be in. You can easily look that up. I did see in L.A. that um, L.A. Times said that, you know, the L.A. County schools are opening back up. I'm sure the same will be of San Diego County for at least primary school, but we'll see how it goes. I mean, they've kind of told us at the college that we should plan to be online for the rest of the year, because even though, you know, more people are being vaccinated and of course it will only expand from here, I think probably especially in the summertime um, with more people being vaccinated, they um, they were telling us that there needs to be, like, a certain percentage of people who are, I think it was, like, 75, like, I guess it's, like, herd immunity idea, before, you know, all of us can be back on campus, and even though I think, you know, my class is essential, and I think many other, you know, Uh, humanities and social science classes are essential you know they don't technically have to be done in the classroom like a lab and things like that so just keep on top of your county website and the health professionals you know yes we all have access to the internet but not all of us studied medicine or epidemiology so (laughs) that's important so i hope you all have a great rest of your day or night bye Ah!